This is the sound of a blizzard treat at DQ. But it also sounds like a weekend bike ride, a post-game celebration, and a sunset on the dock. Wow! Doesn't a blizzard treat sound good? Stop by DQ and grab one today, like new Oreo fudge brownie. Thanks for being the sweetest fans in the world. DQ. Happy tastes good. Hello, welcome to the second Wireless DS podcast with uh, Oliver Ford and Mark Ramsey. We've got a different angle on it this week. We're going to go around the uh, theatre bars of North London and the West End. Just to check out prices, vibe, what peanuts are like. In the bar is Simon Greenhall, who played Michael and Alan Partridge, who's excited us all. Oh my god, I want to go and talk. Can we go and talk to him? How can we go and talk to him? We've got to talk to him. I'm not sure. We're, we're quite drunk. You've got a party book in your bag, haven't you? I have. So I get him to sign it. I can get him to sign my book. I can get him to sign my book. I'm going to ask him to sign my book. Like, I'm going to really be embarrassing. I'm going to talk in a Geordie accent. <laughs> uh, what's happening is that, I must admit, I don't know the actor's name, but some actor from Alan Partridge. Uh, Marielle's a big fan. She's going, going to get his autograph. Oh, this is too embarrassing. Yeah, he's talking to her. He's signing it. It's like he's on a hot date, but that's ruined. She doesn't look impressed. Does she's not impressed at all, is she? Really? But well, no, because she's out having a drink with a friend or a boyfriend, and some drunk girls walked up doing a Geordie accent, asking to sign a book that Steve Coogan wrote. So basically, Marielle's ruining their lives. Sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm completely ruining that. Hi, welcome to the Wireless Pub Wireless Crawl Theatre Review Experience. Hi, is that all right? We've got a bit of a motley crew with us today. We've got a couple of comedians in the name of uh, Steve Hill and Mike Tomlinson. It don't exist. Oh, right. Who's Mike Garnell, if Equity's listening. Mike Garnell. <laughs> and Equity is always listening. Yeah, yeah. which yeah, is a shame because no one's listening to them. Um, and <laughs> we've also got Steve. So, hello, Steve. Hi, how you doing? All right? That's it, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> We'll come back to them after they've had a few beers. And uh, we started our little uh, crawl around the theatre bars of the West End and North London today in the Red Lion, which is at Islington, about two minutes to the left of Angel Tube. I'm going to be reviewing the soft drink options in these bars, and in this one I've got a lime and soda, which has come up trumps. And uh, the show that they're currently playing upstairs is Mercury Fur by Philip Ridley. So, um, nice vibe, not too busy, Friday night, really nice pub, like it so far, cool. And actually stick around because we are actually reviewing Philip Ridley's latest play, uh, uh, this episode. And that was the techie. Yeah, I'm the producer, Ollie, I just, you know, we really start to get it, anyway, that's... (laughs) So yeah, it's Mark here, I've got a lovely little half pint of Grolsch, European, stick with European, isn't it? 5% standard, I think it costs about £2, five out of five, Grolsch... Very good in the red line in Angel Islington. And how does it compare to groceries you've had in other parts of London? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. No difference. Um, I've got the house rosé, um, and it's going down very well. <laughs> it's very nice, and it was about £2.50, I think, which is very reasonable. And, of course, we have Stephen on peanuts, so... Yeah, I've got peanuts because um, my bank card was swallowed on the way here, so big shout-out to Nat West for their total ineptitude. Um, these are tavern peanuts uh, it's a brand that I'm unfamiliar with I've had Nobby's Nuts 
they're, they're kind of the new kids on the block. It was always KP when I was young. These kind of fall somewhere in between the two, but at 70 pence, you can't go wrong, can you, George? Uh, the lager, I'd just like to back up Mark on what he said, and the lager is going down a treat. That's what she said. Thank you very much. I just want to make a little point. It's a lovely sunny day here in London, and I think alcohol in general tastes better on a sunny day anyway, so... So factor that in into all of these reviews. You know, it is sunny. Be aware. You know. So uh, we've got a late entry, haven't we, Ollie? Yes, we have. We've got a lovely friend of mine and wireless theatres, Kerry Gifford. And Kerry's on the white wine. How is it, Kerry? Uh, it's lovely, fruity, dry, with a crisp aftertaste. I am uh, this evening on the bitter. It, it's pretty piss poor, to be honest. Like most bitter in London. Ollie, uh, how was the pricing here? Actually, very reasonable. I think George for Central London Pub. We had a pint of San Miguel pint of bitter, soda and lime, half of Rolsch and a glass of rosé, £13.50. And you can't go wrong with that sort of price in the middle of central London. Well, uh, earlier on today, Techie, George, in-house Techie. Oh, whatever. whatever, chill out. Well, him and and Marielle, uh, they made their way down to the Lost uh, Theatre today. And, uh, well, this this is what happened. We're here at the Lost Theatre, which stands for the London Oratory School Theatre, which was founded in 1979 in their old theatre space in Fulham Broadway. It's predominantly a youth theatre. Each year they present nine plays by industry professionals for people aged 27 and under. They also do events for people under 21 and 16. I was a member of the Lost Theatre when it was based in their Fulham Broadway home. I went along aged eight and was involved in their pantomime of Babes in the Wood. Uh, If it hadn't been for that experience, I definitely wouldn't be involved in theatre now. So it's had a great influence on me. Sadly, they built a shopping centre and a car park over the Fulham venue, leaving the Lost Theatre homeless for nearly 10 years. In 2010, they were finally given the space that they deserve in this fantastic new theatre here in London's Vauxhall. We're here in the theatre now. We actually recorded a live radio play here in 2010. The sound is fantastic. Uh, It could have easily been recorded in a studio, and the team here are hugely supportive. It's a great space to work in. Lost Theatre have always done festivals. The One Act Festival, which is a vehicle uh, to showcase new plays and received instant feedback from judges. Uh, in the past, noted figures such as Ralph Fiennes, Alison Steadman, Derek Jacobi have been involved. They also have the Five Minute Festival, which looks at shorter work and asks theatre makers to be as creative as they can in 300 seconds. This year, for the first time, Lost Theatre have introduced a new festival, the Face to Face Festival, which is all about solo theatre. Uh, they want to present a lineup of solo theatre professionals, all highly respected and gathered from around the world. Alongside those, there'll be an opportunity for up-and-coming solo theatre performers in London. As well as that, they're commissioning, taking submissions and running workshops with a view to training up and inspiring the next generation of solo theatre performers. Wired Up has got exclusive access backstage during the performances and the entire festival um, and interviews with the people who are making this festival happen. Uh, We're here with Oliver Jack and George. We are with Ollie Jack, who is the director in residence, is that right? That's correct, yeah. How did you get to that, Ollie? Uh, Well, when I graduated from Rosebury for college, uh, I already had uh, been here as an audience member and met uh, Mark and the team here who... uh, had very much welcomed any kind of involvement that I, I wanted to have and to get involved with Lost and um, that kind of turned into a job offer after a few weeks and um, I've been here ever since. That's not so bad, so that was straight out of uh, drama school. That's right, yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. The big focus at the moment is the, the solo festival, isn't it? So yeah, just, right. um, just tell us a bit about that and also um, tell us about what it means for young people. Sure, well, um, Lost is kind of known for its two festivals that already exist, the Five Minute Festival and the One Act Festival. And as Lost is kind of um, gaining momentum, we, we've decided we want to add a third one. And we've met a lovely chap who, who's been involved with Lost before called uh, Colin Watkins. 
and we're, we're producing this brand new festival called Face to Face. It's a festival of solo theatre, which is um, going to be brand new and, and very exciting. And thanks to the Arts Council, uh, it's going to provide a lot more opportunities on top of the ones that Lost already offers through its other two festivals. And also hopefully bring some incredible international performers to the stage in Stockwell. You, you mentioned uh, that you know this is this is a lot for young people. That's kind of the the, the sort of the mission of Lost, isn't it? And um, why why is that? Do you think what, what, what's it about Lost that makes them have that focus? I think um, whether or not you want to train or whether or not you want to go to drama school, um, there should always and it's something Lost really believes in. There should always be opportunities to continue to practice and to continue to kind of flex your theatrical muscles so to speak and you know there, there are lots of different people who want to get involved in, in the arts and, and especially theatre and performance now and um, some of them don't have the means to go and train professionally some of them already have a very good job and don't want to turn it into a profession and last for 30 years now has offered those people alongside people who have trained alongside industry professionals to collaborate and to work together push and make theatre and push boundaries and have the right to fail really but on a professional stage because quite often young people um, go up to Edinburgh or go to a festival or, or, or get mum and dad to give them some money to put a show on and there's no guidance there and as a result it's kind of a, a, a flash in the dark and what Lost hopefully can do is, is alongside giving people the opportunity to present their work it can actually provide guidance and training for nothing. That's something I very much experienced when I felt like I, I just graduated and I went for something. It felt like there was a flash in the pan and it, it, it sort of disappeared and that was it, you know, Absolutely. it was gone. And that is, that is a real shame. Um, and so is Lost out there looking for people? Is it looking to cultivate people? Does it, and, and what sort of processes do you do for that? Absolutely. Well, I mean, um, Lost is a... Is we like to think of ourselves as a theatre for emerging artists, people who, as you said yourself, you, you graduate or you, you come out of university with a keen passion for the arts, and sometimes there's a bit of a gap between that and paying your bills by doing it, if you know what I mean. A lot of people get an agent and get some jobs and don't really make the money that they need to live. What, what loss can provide there and, and what it's always provided, I think, through its festivals, through its classes, through also, you know, I think we're one of the only theatres who have on our website, you know, our doors open, come and have a cup of tea. You know, nothing official, nothing formal. If we're free, let's have a chat and see if we can help. You know, I mean, we've got uh, directors, actors, stage managers, uh, producers, costume designers working at Lost, who all are very much um, invested in giving their time to anyone who wants to come and get it. I mean, you know, we, we, we actively seek people for our festivals and certainly for the face-to-face -face festival that's coming up because it's brand new. We're really looking for people to get on the website, get on the Lost website, Facebook, Twitter, Ideas, Tap, and get involved. But at the same time, you know, I would encourage people, whether or not it's about solo theatre or a five-minute piece or a one-act piece or actually just for advice, to give us a ring, get on the website, our details are there, uh, drop us an email, anything, you know, we, uh, we're open seven days a week. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh, and with that in mind, uh, just in terms of applying for these festivals, is there anything you can tell our listeners, you know, any advice you can give them on how to apply well? Sure, absolutely. Face-to-face um, -face theatre, solo theatre, is all about stories and all about sharing stories, not necessarily your own, but inhabiting those stories if they're not. And, and uh, telling them for an audience and including the audience in that. So we're looking for people who are passionate about telling people stories and recounting stories, but also the, the amazing structure of the Face-to-Face -face Festival is that we're bringing from uh, Spain, from Russia, from all over Europe, really, and the UK itself, some of the best international solo theatre performers. They've been doing this for 30 years, some of them, you know, including 
uh, Claire Dowie and Jack Clapp and people like that, you know, and they are going to be providing training opportunities for these people. We're not looking for the finished article. We're looking for people who have an interest in theatre, who aren't scared of stepping on a stage on their own and giving it everything. And if you've got that, we can help you do the rest. The festival begins on July the 9th, and there's a big gala opening uh, on the 12th. We're also um, doing, in the middle of it, on Sunday the 15th, uh, I think it's a first for London. The whole of the Lost Building is going to be taken over by uh, the professional performers that I mentioned earlier on. And uh, they're going to be giving performances for an audience of one. And it's going to be called the Face-to-Face Mini-Fest. Uh-huh. And basically, you're going to come in as an audience member and work your way around the building, promenade style, and have between five and 30 minutes with these performers on your own, locked in a room. I know certainly I'll be first in the queue for a ticket for that one. Um, The festival finishes on the 22nd with a great big hurrah and lots of performances, and hopefully we're working with some uh, local company that's going to do a barbecue and stuff like that. It's going to be great. Um, But if you log onto the website, which is solotheatrefestival.co.uk, or on the Twitter, there actually there's a lot of training opportunities associated with this. The guides are coming over over the next few months, and classes and workshops begin on the 30th of April, so not long at all, really. Um, And we're currently taking uh, inquiries and submissions for those. All the details are on the website, uh, again, solotheatrefestival.co.uk, and uh, it'll break down all the elements of how you can get involved and what you need to do. Uh, so that was Ollie Jack, just with a little introduction regarding the um, face-to-face festival. And do uh, tune in to us next month. We'll have a whole load of exciting goodies. We're in the King's Head. Actually, Upper Street and Islington is quite a good venue for theatres. You've got two of the best th- fringe theatres in London, really. King's Head, Red Line, where we've been previously. There's also a major theatre in the shape of the Almeida a few streets away. But King's Head at the moment is probably the most prestigious fringe theatre in London, I'd say. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, definitely. Especially the sort of uh, starting to get a bit more zone tuning around, around here, isn't it? So, yeah, definitely. Zone one, um, if you will. We're still zone one, but do you know what I mean? It's a, bit, it's a bit further away from the West End than, say, the Menia Theatre, which is kind of considered fringe, but it's... Um, Anyway, another point. That's in London Bridge, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is Zone 1. You could get more central than London it's Bridge. It's all Zone 1, isn't it? Okay, so, so showing your expertise off brilliantly well there again. A couple of pints, a couple of yeah. pints. It's like, it is like sitting with Michael Billington. Uh, yeah, so we've all, um, we've all had a drink. There's two extra drinks bought in this particular round. We've got an extra pint of lager and a glass of red. And the price it came to was £19.75. So basically, it costs about the same as uh, the red line we were, were previously... Yeah, and uh, very, very nice atmosphere in here. Not too busy. Staff are lovely and helpful, and there's loads of interesting things going on at this venue. At the moment, Carmen. That's which an opera, is, isn't it? Yeah, which has got ties with the Royal Opera House as well. Yeah, I think they're going to be running two plays side by side. You get the opera, and they usually have a play on different nights of the week. And then the other play is The Truth Teller by David Crook. Um, that's on the 6th of May 2012. Most of the plays at the King's Head actually are quite prestigious. Arnold Wesker is celebrating his 80th birthday at the King's Head with a play. And that was the one of the angry young men of the 50s. So that is actually quite big news. However, Fringe Theatre, the top ticket for the Arnold Wesker play is 25 quid. 25 quid. That. Yeah, well, that's. that's I mean, I was getting a bit crazy about that 15 quid the other day, wasn't I? Could I just say with the truth teller, we've got a really good friend of ours, Navid Khan. Um, he's playing a shopkeeper in this particular place, so I know we're going to be watching this for definite, aren't we? Lime and soda, lovely. Tastes exactly the same. 
I had half a lager. It's, it's Budweiser, and it tastes very good. I had the uh, Timothy Taylor's bitter. Unfortunately, I've drunk Timothy Taylor's in Yorkshire, so you know when you drink it down here, it tastes like it's been filtered through a tramp. Got to let that go, George, I'm afraid. Um, I've had a pint of Beck's with a lemonade top, and I also had some KP dry-roasted peanuts, which were pretty standardly great, I thought. Uh, I've got a, uh, a pint of Budweiser, uh, a little mouthful of America's Finest. I've got a glass of the House White. <laughs> uh, they didn't have a House Rosé, uh, and it's very nice. It's a little bit, um, but it's quite nice. Hi, I've got a glass of House Red. It's really nice. It's worth noting that with all those drinks, for people that don't live in London, £20 for that round is actually quite cheap. And uh, nice vibe in here with lots of different people from all walks of life, so... Uh, yeah, we might stay here. What are we going after here? Mary, I'll just explain to us why we're deducting a point from the King's Head. One point is deducted because, uh, deducted because I just went down to the loo and I came face to bum with a man having a wee. So we're here at the Almeida, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah, the grand total, we've got the same round as last time. What we got? We got, I mean, there's no pints here, so we've got about three bottles of beer, two glasses of wine, uh, we've got a soda water. And that came to £21.40. So it, it does cost a bit more, but then we're not sitting on chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> that was very nice. It was all right. My Loma soda. Uh, hit the spot. They don't even have bitter here, so I'm having a Budvar. I'm not even going to comment. Uh, yeah, I'll comment if you're not going to. It's bloody brilliant. <laughs> so you're missing out. I'll say the red is easy drinking, not so full-bodied as before, but still rather pleasant. My white wine tastes exactly the same as it did in the last place. A little bit more expensive, but still very nice. Uh, they don't sell peanuts, but they do sell chocolate stroke carrot cake, um, which is what most people have when they go to the pub, isn't it? And I had a, a European Budweiser, Budvar. We're always, I mean, we're quite serious this week, aren't we? You know, doing the reviews yeah. about the pubs and all that. And we've got some more news. Did you read that in the budget this month? George Osborne's given a lot more money to the British Film Council than any past government in the last 20 years. Conservative government pumping in a few more bob into the British Arts Council, which, if they carry on making films like Mark and I saw this week, Wild yeah. Bill, Wild is Bill. only a good thing. Cause that was brilliant. Yeah, but for every Wild Bill, we've got something with Kira Knightley in, so... We've got a, a, an interview now with Wireless Theatre's all-time hero, really. 30 years uh, working as a senior radio drama producer for the BBC. And has been a, a huge advocate for wireless theatre. So uh, yeah. we like her. We love her. We've got an exclusive interview with Cherry Cookson. Uh, enjoy. We're here with Cherry Cookson, who has had a career spanning over 30 years in radio drama. First of all, how did you get into radio drama? Was it something you always knew you wanted to do? No, a very roundabout way. Um, I'm very lucky, and when I look back on my career, I realise that everything is just sort of fallen into place but it didn't seem so at the time um, like everybody I wanted to be a great actress I hadn't realized I was actually very bad <laughs> and um, I left school um, quite young because I was I went to a very very um, horrible boarding school but being quite bright I did my A-levels very quickly and okay. uh, actually left school at 17 with everything um, but anyway I thought right I'm going to go to drama school got turned down by drama school I went to study music because I was very good at music but it wasn't what I wanted to do really applied from music school the next year to go to drama school and they all remembered how bad I was so I sort of studied music but then dropped out then I did a short drama course at a drama school where they don't turn you away but I realized I was not good at acting and tried to join the BBC ironically who then headhunted me about five years later 
But they, in those days, would only take on people with double firsts in English from Oxbridge and that sort of thing. Or you could go and be a secretary. And I, I was wise enough then to realise that that was going to be a dead end. So I went to a fantastic agency called Graduate Girls who got me a job in independent television as a researcher because they were much more um, adventurous. And if they liked you, they gave you a chance to get on. So I worked for ABC and then Thames Television in their research department, working on various programmes. Then I got a fantastic break where I went to become a literary agent at Curtis Brown. And I was assistant to someone in what was called the showbiz department. And we dealt with all sorts of writers and amazing people. Like I was ringing up, you know, people like W.H. Auden and Lawrence Durrell and Daphne du Maurier and Samuel Beckett, all these giants. And um, without being too indiscreet, somebody I worked with there wasn't around a lot. So I did a lot of his job. And in fact, he then later was asked to leave. And so I took over really very young looking after all these amazing people. I mean, it was just the most fantastic break. I was only about 22, 23 when I went and did that. And so I worked for three years, really having the most amazing time, you know, including things like ringing up W.H. Auden and asking him to appear on the Michael Parkinson show, which he (laughs) did and then absolutely loathed it, which I knew he would, but, you know. (laughs) uh, It was a very, very varied job. I became very interested in radio drama, I think I thought it was just much more satisfying as a medium and started wanting to work more on that. And the agency weren't so keen on that because um, it wasn't so lucrative. And at roughly the same time, the BBC, I was having lunch with them and they, someone was going off on leave and said, they said, would you be interested in coming here on contract as a, a script editor? And it was just the right timing. So I left the agency and went to the BBC where I worked for two years on two weekly contracts. I worked with really interesting people um, in the script unit there. People like John Madden, who's now a very famous film director who directed The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and um, Peter Kosminski, who's very successful. It was a fantastic job, and after two years, um, I managed to get a job as a, on the staff as a script editor. I think the great thing about radio there was that you weren't allowed to direct a play until you learnt how to edit a script. Mm. And as we all know, getting a script right before you direct it is absolutely vital. I didn't direct a play for probably four years. Uh, I I wasn't allowed to direct them. I was only allowed to script edit them. And then I used to start by directing plays that weren't very good. You know, they always gave you something rubbish. Then slowly you started doing really good plays. In fact, that was more frightening than doing a bad play. You can only improve a bad play and you can only ruin a good one. (laughs) So after a while, I then got a job as a staff junior director. And then about four years later, one of the senior directors was leaving and having by then started to do really proper stuff there, um, I managed to get her job and worked there for, well, many, many years, including some of the time actually helping to Um, run the team of producers. Has it changed massively, the BBC? Yes, I mean, the main change, which is the one that I think we all find quite difficult, is that in the, what we call the old days, and it's not being old-fashioned, you know, the producer's enthusiasm for a project was absolutely pivotal. You were, it was all based on trust. I mean, obviously, there were people who had mates who wrote radio plays and probably got them on the air. I mean, probably still the same today. But you could actually sell a play in a meeting verbally, 
um, with your enthusiasm. Mm. Um, things got turned down, but everything was done on a, a rolling basis at a weekly meeting where producer directors would turn up. These days, it's all become very like television. I mean, it's all pitched on paper. It's very, very difficult to, to however enthusiastic or passionately you feel about a play, if you can't verbalise that and the decision is going to be made on a something that is read on the page, it's much more difficult to actually sell projects. With regard to career paths, you were an agent and then you were asked to join the BBC and then you ended up directing. Yeah. So there's almost sort of three little career shifts there. Yeah. Do things like that still happen? Is it possible to have that progression? I think it is still possible. I mean, it's very difficult to learn how to be a director. Mm. Uh, it really is. And that's why, as I say, I think the first ground rules is to get this a good script and to make sure you know how to script edit because then you know the play will sort of play itself i think you've got to know a lot about casting if you miscast something on the radio you, you completely had it i was very nervous about becoming director because i'm actually naturally quite introverted and um the thought of standing up and telling people who i'd admired for years what to do <laughs> was just terrifying and I'm still get scared yeah of course <laughs> I, yeah, as everybody says the day you don't get scared you give up yeah and yeah. um, so you were talking earlier about your background a bit in music and um, Jeremy Howe recently said to me that no one mixes music and drama quite like you do why do you have such a skill at mixing the two do you think I think for myself I've always wanted to make programs that are very it sounds frightfully enough very beautiful I think radio is a fantastic medium mm. I think people with really wonderful voices, not beautiful necessarily, but I think there are some people who've got very dull voices and so you tend to want to cast people who've got really quite musical voices sometimes. Uh, music, to me, I've always thought that things can be enhanced and really made quite magical. Or so just moments in plays can be made quite wonderful by the right music. And to me, it's always been an exciting challenge mm -mm. to find the right bit of music for a play and you know I would often say if I once I've found the music I know how to do the play I used to work with an editor in the days when we worked with faders and things and she said oh you, you've got to do all your own fades because I knew exactly where and I mean literally to the nth second where the speech should start directing is almost like composition isn't it yeah You're very right. much so very much so I mean I I do sort of think of it in quite a kind of musical kind of way. People always used to say, um, I knew five minutes in that it was one of your plays because of the music. And I usually like to take that as a compliment. I mean, I'm yeah. sure writers will think I've drowned some of their plays in music, but uh, I'm very, very strict about music editing. And I annoy a lot of people when I'm doing my fine, fine editing because People like, you know, now that it's all digital, people will say, oh, I'll just cut a few bars out and then it'll fit well at the end. Well, sometimes that can work. But I can hear, you know, I knew, know most of the music backwards and I can hear it, you know. And, and with that in mind, Cherry, what's always surprised me about radio drama is how fast it's made. Do you ever feel, com comparatively with other art forms, I sometimes feel like that's a bit unfair. Is that something you empathise with? Yes, I mean, there's something quite exciting about working very, very fast. It can be exciting, but there's an awful lot of compromise, I think. And I think the thing I most hate is having to record so quickly after a read-through. Sometimes in the old days when we had, say, four days to do a 90-minute play, in the days when there were 90-minute plays, um, you would rehearse for three days and you wouldn't record until the final day. And wow. that that was wonderful, actually. And we, we also, I did plays in runs where I'd do a whole 
90 minute play as a one continuous take with all the sound effects and the music and I love working like that and the thing I dislike most about the new way of working is that I'm not allowed to put the music on at the time of recording because I always used to do that and I, the actors were aware of that and it's pretty nerve-wracking but I often felt you got a better performance. For example, I did a play last year for Radio 4 and I wanted to put the music on at the time and the actor, I think, wanted to put the music on at the time but we were sort of told it would be easier to put it on later. Well, it wasn't. And there is almost, as someone, I say this as someone who's never ever worked with anything but digital, but there almost is the curse of the digital editor to assume that you can actually do something after the event when actually you can't, because you can't adjust the amount of time an actor takes to say the lines. Is is this something that's happening more and more at the BBC? Is, is digital supplanting, you know, the sort of skills that, that maybe 20, 30 years ago were commonplace? I think there is a huge false economy in terms of saving money because I think um, by not putting everything on at the time and saying we can do all that later, I think you often end up spending more money than you would have done in the studio um, in editing time because editing time isn't free. I think it should be more flexible depending on the project and the director and everything else. During the time you were at the BBC, Cherry, what, what sort of changes did you see? Well, I was there for, I think it was about... 34 years, something amazing like that. Um, huge changes. I mean, absolutely huge changes. I mean, a very simple thing. In the old days, we had studios um, where we had, if you wanted echo on something, we, there was an echo chamber, mm -hmm. which was in the basement at Broadcasting House. And <laughs> you, went, you had to say to the person, I want echo in this scene, and they'd fade up this echo chamber the fam famous story once that they faded it up when there was a couple <laughs> having sex <laughs> in the echo chamber I don't know if that was true everybody in those days had a lot more fun and they all dr drank a lot I mean it was quite interesting but when I first joined there and there were these kind of iconic people um, it was an amazing place to work but people were quite often the worst for wear. We all smoked like anything, you know, people drank at lunchtime. Uh, there was a huge sense of enjoyment. I think there's a slight climate of fear at the moment and part of me in a way thinks I'm relieved I'm not dealing with some of the the pressures. I mean, rather like the National Health Service, the amount of bureaucracy. Um, I, did a, I directed a play for the department just after I'd left and I had to come in and do a four-hour online health and safety module on a computer which couldn't be done at home um well that just says it all doesn't it <laughs> there's a lot of false economy i think these days to be honest i think if if they trusted say the director now and the director said right i need you know an extra half day in the studio and it'll cost less in the long run or whatever um there's far too many people interfering with how you are how you work really a lot of what we've just been talking about with regards to the culture surrounding radio drama and all that sort of stuff um, and thinking back to what I know of, of the BBC before I was born you know stuff like the Radiophonic Workshop and the kind of the stuff they were doing with sound effects and things like that and looking at what I know of it now would you say that when we're thinking about the future that actually a degree of experimentation has been lost yes I mean I worked a lot with the Radiophonic Workshop and uh, I worked a great deal with one of the best people in it, Elizabeth Parker, who also wrote a lot of music for the plays that I did. And uh, it was a very misogynistic world, I have to say. Uh, and as a woman director, I had a lot of 
problems with some of the people there. But there was something wonderful about them. And um, before certain changes in the BBC, they were a free resource. Then it became something that uh, you, you had to pay for. Then it became sort of phased out. It's very, very sad because it was a very exciting way of working. It's a whole world lost. It was very innovative. Now it's all a bit clinical. Taking that into account, obviously, you know, with the new technology that they have now, the internet, downloading that kind of stuff. Do you think there is a future for radio drama? And what do you think the future is? Uh, Well, I think there's a huge future for radio drama. There's a huge pressure at the moment to get a younger audience. I don't think it's... Well, obviously, with what Wireless Theatre Company is doing, is fantastically good at doing that. It's quite difficult for the BBC to actually manage to do that. And I don't think some of the programmes they make to try and get a younger audience sort of quite kind of work. But, uh, yeah, I think it's just a question of um, keeping people um, aware of radio drama and, and huge you know, publicity and everything. I wish there were more programmes on television about radio drama. I think it's a fantastic medium it's hugely underrated and i think a lot more could be done to make programs about radio because i think people are genuinely fascinated about how it works and certainly teaching young new actors you know how do you do a kiss on the radio um you know how how do you do this that the other you know they're absolutely fascinated by it how do you do a kiss on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> well, some actors like to do the real thing if they fancy. <laughs> you leave it up to the act. I've always left it up to the actors, and I've seen everything from quite a lot. I can tell you. <laughs> I think it's all in the breathing, mm. heavy mm. breathing, and and sort of nostling into the um, yes, a lot of all that. You actually have to almost have a an orgasm in order to sound like you're having a kiss. And what's next for you, Jay? Um, well, I hope Manchester United are going to beat Blackburn. <laughs> oh. uh, I've just directed a play for Radio 3, which goes out um, the beginning, just before Wimbledon starts. It's a very anarchic comedy um, starring Alex Jennings and Celia Imry and Michael Maloney and lots of other wonderful people, which we did on location on a real tennis court. And I'm doing a play later this year about Rachmaninoff for Radio 4. Next year I'm doing another big play for Radio 3 about Wagner and Verdi. Lovely. And hopefully some more work for the uh, Wallis Theatre Company. Of course. Oh, we of hope course. so. We very much hope Jerry, thank you very much. Thank you. Not at all, thank you. So from heroes to villains, did you read that Camden Council this month have mm. slashed Hampstead Theatre's money and their rent's been increased, which can only be a bad thing for a theatre? I remember when that was relaunched in 2002, I think it was, yeah, Hampstead yeah. Theatre. I mean, when's, when's the last time you watched some theatre in Hams- Hampstead? Actually, it wasn't that long ago. Wasn't it? Yeah. What was that? Uh, it was called The Straits. Yeah. Come from the Travers in Edinburgh. That's the kind of thing they do. Transferring plays. Very, it's where Mike Lee started. And it comes on the back of the budget when George Osborne's given some more money to the British Film Council. It should be a bit more evenly yeah, spread out. Kira Knightley needs to have some films to make. Yeah. No <laughs> chance of earth perform at the Hampstead Theatre. When are we no, going to see Lesbian Vampire Killers 2? I mean, that's what I'm at. On the stage, please. So we've got some more Arts Council news now. The very influential, very powerful Max Stafford Clark has had a real rant about them. And we've got his quote verbatim, which my colleague Mark is going to read out. So Mark, get yourself into... You're going to play yeah. Max Stafford All right. Clark. Where, so. Where's he been? I'd say he's been... 
he's been furiously pacing up and down his office, livid yeah. with the Arts Council. So get that into your yeah, mind. Okay, so you just been, what's he, it's what time of the morning are we talking? We're talking 11 o'clock in the morning. 10 o'clock in the morning. He's brushed his teeth, he's had a coffee, he's had a yeah. croissant, he's on his way to he's work. Been, furious. So when you Where's he from? This? Where's he from? I don't, why ask me that? He's from Hull. Here okay. we go, here we go, right. I feel extremely bitter about the Arts Council. He said. They produced an expensive pamphlet called Excellent for All in late 2010 and then instituted a policy which means excellence only for London and a few rich bastards in the country. How was that? God, it was like having him in the room. Yeah, yeah. Well done, Mark. And, 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 a, and a good point, well made. Yeah. I don't actually have an agent at the moment, so if you want to <laughs> contact Wireless Theatre Company, that'd be great. Uh, we're here in the new Diorama Theatre Bar. I am uh, the tech... Oh, for fuck's sake. I am the producer, George Maddox, and Ollie and Mark are going to talk about their first theatre experiences. I remember my first theatre experience very, very well indeed. It was a snowy, cold Christmas Eve at the Churchill Theatre Bromley, 1985. Parents took me all excited to this amazing space. The lights went down and on trotted Rod Holman Emu in Jack and a Beanstalk. The performance lasted three hours. We were taken on a journey. There was tears. There was laughter. I'm not saying there wasn't. There was plenty of that. Rod knew how to tickle the funny bone. And when I came out, I thought, that's what I want to do. Run around, wrestling people to the ground with a great big, unconvincing-looking bird on my arm. So I became an actor because of that experience. I get a bit emotional thinking about what happened to him. Well, like a lot of British people... My first ever theatre experience was a pantomime, of course, watching a pantomime. I watched um, Snow White, I think it was, at the Torch Theatre, Milford Haven, in Pembrokeshire. Big up, it's the only professional theatre in, in Pembrokeshire. And I know you had, you had Emu. I had the equally fabulous Sooty and Sue. It's funny, isn't it, how both Mark and I love theatre. Yeah, yeah. And know a lot about it. And can talk about it for hours and hours. Yeah, yeah. And both our theatre experiences were glove puppets, first first ones. And I did. I was inspired by Sooty because he doesn't use words. No. It's a it's a wink. It's a nod. Yeah. It's a glance at the audience. Yeah. I mean, Matthew, he was a bit weird. Wasn't he? Yeah. But I saw Sooty as well. Sooty in space. It was called in the did West you? End. That was another Christmas in show. In the West End. In the West End. Wow. If you want to know more about Rod Hull and Emu, Sooty. Other oh. things like that. Do tweet us. Yeah, or, or let us know about your first ever theatre experiences. I mean, I'm sure for a lot of British people it will be the pantomime. Uh, but it would be great to hear from people from uh, the US or anywhere in the world just to know about your uh, your first theatre experiences. Yeah. So do tweet us. What's the tweet address again? Wireless Theatre. All right, Wireless oh, Theatre. Tech is bursting again, isn't he? It's, yeah. just, it's just on the producer lines. It's, it's like there's this recurring theme. I'm, I'm not sure I'm happy about it. You remind me of Emu. We're in the New Diorama Theatre, which is about a five-minute walk from Warren Street Tube Stations. It's all new around here, you can see that. Um, not the most comfortable of bar I've ever sat in, but uh, very modern, very new, very nice. Yeah, it's like we're sat in the, uh, the lobby for like a big, big building in Canary Wharf, really, like HSBC. Yeah. Or a trendy sort of place, like when you watch the social network, where they all work in there. It's like that. Yeah. Bright lights, orange sideboards. Not my cup of tea, personally. I'm, a, lot, I'm sure a lot of people like this kind of stuff. But their play they've got at the moment is their first in-house play, The Dark Room, and that runs from the 10th to the 28th of April 2012. 
And, and uh, it was written and directed by... Yeah, David Byrne. He's the uh, artistic director, isn't he, yeah. for this particular theatre. And he, he wrote this, this new play, so yeah. Um, we spent £16.50 on a glass of white wine, a glass of red wine and two Coronas. So, mm, kind of reasonable, but not amazing. But what I'd like to point out is they don't take cards, which definitely marks them quite largely down in my book, because who doesn't take cards these days? Nice toilets. Yeah, lovely toilets. The toilets are very good, almost as good as the Almeida toilets. I was a big fan of the Almeida toilets. Yeah, much better than the uh, red line toilets. Yeah, that's, that's... We won't say any more about that. It's lightning. It's lightning in a bottle. <laughs> Uh, another little spot for you now. Techie has been out and about. I am, I'm, guys, I'm, I'm the producer. Why do you, you keep saying that? You're the producer. You've just got a mic in your hand and you wander about a bit. You don't do much. You're not really like... I, hope, I mean, it's been a month since the last podcast, so maybe some people might be awake from the last review that he did. Yeah. Um, cause I may, yeah. What did you think of his last review? I didn't listen to it. No, to no. I thought we were doing, what were we doing at the time? I think we were. Well, you put the M and M's out, didn't you? At that point, the PR. Yeah, we were just eating them, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. And sort of just. Yeah, you managed to get that. Remember, you got the blue one. You managed to flick it from the table into my mouth. Yeah, like yeah. hungry hippos. Yeah, yeah. Review of Shivered by Philip Ridley at the Southwark Playhouse. Philip Ridley is a contemporary legend of British theatre widely credited with being one of the first of the in-your-face theatre movement, which was most prevalent with writers such as Ravenhill, Kane and Nielsen in the 1990s. Like them, his work is violent, sexual, aggressive and often shocking. It's never an easy ride. However, like his contemporaries, it's always very much worth it. Shivered is no exception to this, and in fact it feels like one of the most important plays he's written in many years. The Southwark Playhouse is on Tooley Street. It's right next door to London Bridge's very best pub, which is the Shipwright Arms. It's an old converted railway arch, which has three spaces. Shivered is in the main house, which sounds more grandiose than it is. In reality, it's a a lighting rig and some traverse seating, and that's really it. As a result, it's a very, very atmospheric space. It's a shame, therefore, that this production doesn't quite make the best use of it. Richard Howell's lighting design, whilst containing moments of real beauty, also has moments where it feels very flat indeed, and this is very much true of the technical aspects of the production as a whole, which just feel underdeveloped and slight. The whole production feels like it needs more. More multimedia, more set, more lighting, more sound. If I had to hazard a guess, I would say this might perhaps be a deliberate thing and that Russell Boland, the director, is attempting to really highlight the performances and really bring the text to the fore. It's a very brave idea and it's also very appropriate for text that is as rich and as dense and as dark as Ridley's is. However, Ridley's text is a gift and a curse. It's raw and it's visceral and it goes to the absolute heights of emotion, to the most trite of banalities, sometimes within the space of a monologue, a scene. Despite this extreme language, it always feels very important that the characters in Ridley's plays should be real, real people that we might meet. And that's crucial because it keeps us grounded. It keeps Ridley's work from becoming merely the pornography of violence and it's not entirely clear whether or not the Southwark Playhouse is the right sized venue for that to come across it just felt like on occasion the performers were having to push the performances out to the back and give slightly bigger performances than the text merited put simply 
there were moments when you felt there was more acting than feeling going on and that felt like a great shame this is a phenomenon that you can see in quite a lot of theatres it's a symptom also of what happens when playwrights who initially were staged in smaller fringe venues and made their name are then transferred to bigger spaces you know it's something i've seen with ridley's other work when it was performed at the lyric hammersmith it was something that became quite obvious when david eldridge who was cited as a sort of fringe member of the in your face theatre movement uh, had a, his work market boy staged at the national where it felt like his writing style was simply encompassed and o- overtaken by the space but this is the criticism of a theatre geek and um, this is really a very solid and competent production from start to finish what you start to suspect after about 20 minutes of watching Shivered and what you are absolutely certain of by the end is that this is one of the most important plays that Ridley has written in a long time. What marks it out from Ridley's other work is that the world Ridley has created for this play is exactly our world. In the past it's often seemed like the worlds that Ridley has created are almost identical to our world with one big difference that we never get to know. It feels like there's been a war or there's been some sort of Armageddon or there's been something like that. What's different and compelling about Shivered is that it doesn't feel like this. It feels exactly like the world in which we live in now, but with all the horror and all the fear and all the futility of Ridley's previous work. And that says something about the way the world is, the way we are as a country, and also about the way Ridley is progressing as a writer. It bodes enormously well for Ridley's future work and Although it seems premature to say this, it makes Shivered one of the more important plays to see this year. We're in the Rada bar, Rada Studios bar, just off Goot Street, Rada of course, the most famous drama school probably in the world actually. It's pretty soulless. But it is Formerly a, the Drill Hall. Yeah, Drill Hall. Um, place that a lot of auditions take place actually in London. Uh, and it's very expensive, we're going to go through everyone's list of drinks now. Mark... Oh, yeah, I had a pint of Cronenberg, and it cost me four pounds twenty. I've got a diet coke, and that cost one pound eighty. So I got a pint of lager and a glass of red wine, eight pound eighty. I'm livid. It's kind of a little bit soulless. What is essentially a student bar? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, showing off. They've gone for Nobby's nuts. Of course, they have the new brand, the brand that ever all the kids are talking about. You can't go three minutes without some kid going yeah bruv Nobby's nuts is dab bomb I've got a glass of white wine uh, and I bought for Steve a uh, lager top and uh, I've got a London pride I paid £13.50 which is very expensive in the bar is Simon Greenhall who played Michael and Alan Partridge was excited us all oh my god I want to go and talk. <laughs> Is that a bit shit to ask him to sign him in? No, Hang on, who is he? And who no, is there he? is a photo, I'm going to get him to sign him. No, but where, where, where is he and who's he he's with? He's over there, he's in the photo. He's not with a single woman, though, is he? He's like with lots of people. <laughs> She's really harassing the poor man. Yeah, well, the poor woman, right? Oh, he looks confused as well. You know, looks confused and bemused. Yeah, but I mean, at least he feels like. We're in a uniquely classy eating establishment just off Charing Cross Road and, and Mark has just noticed that there's a real guarantor of our safety. This place has a... Yeah, it has a food hygiene rating certificate. Three stars. 
Here we are at the end of our, uh, our journey. We're in the Phoenix Bar, the members' bar underneath the Phoenix Theatre on Charing Cross Road. A bar that is... Uh, anyone can go in it before 8 o'clock, after 8 o'clock. You need to be a member. Unless you're already here, then you can stay. Drinks are quite cheap. It's very, very theatrical. Full of um, all sorts of people from all the West End shows now, filling out, coming down. Can't go without mentioning the, uh, the original owner of it, a chap called Morris, who passed away a couple of months ago. Anyone that's been here before two months would have known him because he propped up the bar. Yeah, and I think that this is probably one of the best theatre bars, or sort of best-kept secrets in London, especially for those who are involved in the theatre world. And I got a pint of McEwan's, Scottish, isn't it? £2.90, that is a very big bargain. That's lovely, that's £2.90, cheapest pint of the night. No problem. I mean, no, it's not that nice, but sure, but... It's the last pub of the evening, so I'm not really looking for nice. So, Ollie, um, I've had a few drinks. You, you've had nothing to drink. So, uh, I don't know if anyone at home has realised, but we have been drinking steadily throughout the evening, throughout the whole podcast that you've been listening to. And uh, how's your evening been? It's been really nice, Mark. Uh, it's been uh, it's at its highs and its lows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been emotional, but it's also been full of laughter. We've been walking around all the theatre bars in London, and I think they're all really nice, actually. London's got some of the nicest theatres in the world, and a nice underground scene, and um, we haven't really touched on any big West End theatre bars. We've gone to the outsider ones, and um, my winner would be the King's Head, followed by the Phoenix, because that's happened until three. Uh, our second Ollie, my favourite bar was definitely the King's Head. King's Head, how far they've come in the last 10 years, amazing. Yeah, I'll go with uh, King's Head. Yeah, King's Head, don't want to sound like a stuck record, but that's the winner for me. Absolutely, 100% the Phoenix. I, I quite like the King's Head myself. So that was unanimous. King's Head seems to win by quite a margin, but uh, all of them quite nice. So uh all the bars of London in the theatre industry. Thanks for listening. Twitter us at Wireless Theatre. Or you can get us at our hashtag uh, Wired Up on Twitter. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. And we promise to be sober. Say bye, everyone. Bye. What's the situation? Well, Marielle saw a close group of men, including James McAvoy, and managed to break into them and said, all I want is for young people under 60 to listen to radio drama. And I'm not being funny, they're listening to her. James McAvoy happens to be listening to Marielle. We should point out for the benefit of the tape, there's not a lot of places he can actually walk in. He's fairly boxed in. (laughs) This is the sound of a blizzard treat at DQ. But it also sounds like a weekend bike ride, a post-game celebration, and a sunset on the dock. Wow, doesn't a blizzard treat sound good? Stop by DQ and grab one today, like new Oreo fudge brownie. Thanks for being the sweetest fans in the world. DQ, happy tastes good.